Today, I want us to turn our hearts and ask you this question. Do you ever wonder why when our hands are full, we always drop the thing that's most important? Am I the only one that does this? I mean, you try to go in with your armload of stuff and you end up dropping the thing that's most valuable. Matter of fact, I saw a video the other day of a, a man who was out fishing and he had caught this bass on his boat and he picked up the fish in one hand and he had his, pitch, he had his phone in the other hand and he was taking a picture of, of his fish and his friend was filming all this as he reeled it in. So he's taking a picture of his fish. He was so excited that when he went to release his fish, instead of throwing his fish back into the lake, you got it, he threw his phone back into the lake. I think it's so true because sometimes we, we, we're so easy to drop the thing that's most valuable and we hang on to the things that are not valuable. I mean, we're, we hang on. You ever notice we hang on to guilt? We hang on to past mistakes. We hang on to shame. We hang on to things like that forever. And we'll let go and drop God's love and grace and mercy. No matter how many times Pastor G preaches it to you and you've read it and you've heard it. We'll, we'll drop those things. And then we hang on to the things we messed up in our life. And I want that to reverse. I want you to learn to let go of the shame. I want you to let go of the past mistakes and hang on to the love of God. Hang on to the grace of God. Hang on to the mercy of God in your life. I want you to hang on to the thing that really matters and that's that you are a child of God and that God values you so much that he paid his life for your freedom. That's how much he loved you. That he paid with his life for our freedom today. So today, as we hold true, it can be very true to this even in the holiday season. As Christians, we're really good about celebrating Christmas and Easter. We're really good, aren't we? We, we come, we celebrate the baby Jesus that gets all the decorations. And then Easter, we come in and celebrate the risen Lord as we should. And of course, we, we got Easter eggs and we got, we got Easter outfits and you ladies are going to get your Easter hair and Easter nails and Easter shoes and guys will get whatever they give us, but we'll, we'll come. It's going to be a great day, but you know, oftentimes today, Palm Sunday gets overlooked. And when I say overlooked, what I mean is it gets undervalued. We, we tend to drop that. But I want to let you know, without Palm Sunday and what happens this week, there will be no Easter celebration. And so it's important at the heart of every believer that we set our mind and our heart ready today. Palm Sunday is a reset for us to remember what took place this week and the last week of our Savior. I want to let you know that when Jesus heals Lazarus, that he went, remember his good friend Lazarus had died, his friends sent for him, but by the time Jesus was able to get there, he'd been dead for four days. Four days, Lazarus had been dead. And when he gets there, Jesus weeps with his friends because they had been mourning for four days. And even though he knew what was about to take place, his heart was still full of compassion for the family and for the friends that they'd been weeping and he wasn't here. But I believe that it was an important event for Jesus to show up on four days because the prophecy was that Jesus would be resurrected in three days. So if he could declare his dominance over death for four days, 
He was setting up his disciples. He was setting up the church to know that the Father had already given him the power for the resurrection. And the Bible says that he looked out and they've been weeping. He says, it's okay, he's going to come alive. He says, Father, so that these people will know that you have been given all power belongs to you in heaven. It says that he called out with the voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, have you ever thought about this? That Lazarus in his tomb had to come forth. But if you study anything out about the way they buried people back in that day, that he wouldn't just walked out. That he had been wrapped up very tightly, almost mummified in his wrappings. So you got to use your imagination to believe some of this, but I want you to get what really happened here. If he's wrapped from head to toe tightly, how did he walk out of that tomb? How did he walk out of that grave? Could it be, some of you may think that he, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you think that he hopped his way out of there. I'm just going to give you my opinion. I, there's, there's nothing biblical that, that backs this up only through study of knowing what they actually did during this day. I believe that as soon as Jesus' voice went out and said, come forth, that immediately the breath of God breathed right back into him. He came alive and his body went and landed right in front of you. That's what I believe happened. Just knowing the tradition of that day. The reason why we know that because Jesus said, now loose this man and let him go. See, he was not unbound until Jesus said, loose this man. He was already alive. And what you got to understand is that our lives, that today when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive the breath of God back into our hearts and spirit. And my old man is gone. My dead man is gone. I've been resurrected in Jesus Christ. And not only does he breathe resurrection power into my life, but now he says, loose that man, loose that woman, and let her go. No longer tied to the shame. No longer tied to the hurt. No longer tied to the dead man's clothes to carry him. Take off that victim mentality. Take off all the things they've been through and let him go. You are free. Can you imagine that? Lazarus is risen from the dead at Jesus' commands. And people showing up and are like, is that Lazarus having dinner with Jesus in their house? Look in the window. I, I was at his funeral four days ago. What's he doing alive having a meal with the Savior? I mean, so what happens now is his fame begins to spread even more. In a time when there was no social media or, or, or TV, that word of mouth is spreading. Do you know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. Wow. I mean, people begin to, they were already talking about Jesus. The crowds are already following. But now, his, at the height of his, his fame is growing across the land. Jesus said, it's time for us to return home to Jerusalem. And it says that when he got to the edge of the city, that he told his disciples, now go Outside the gate here, you'll find a man there. There you'll find the donkey, and he'll have a young colt tied up. Tell him it's for your Savior. He knows what, I, what you're saying. God's already prepared this place. Then bring the donkey to me. 
And it says that he brought the donkey to him, the young colt, and they prepared it for Jesus to enter into the city. Matter of fact, we see this here on this verse. Look at this verse here. As we see coming up here in Zechariah 9.9, it was a prophecy given about the Messiah. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout with triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. This was a prophecy given that the king would return to the city riding on a donkey. So it was only him fulfilling prophecy that he would ride in on a donkey. And why was it important that Jesus rode in on a donkey? Because when you rode in on a horse to a city, it was a declaration of war. That you were showing up to do battle. You were showing up to do war. So the fact that he showed up on a low-key donkey, number one, says he didn't come for war. He come for peace. Number two, he didn't come with impressive chariots. He didn't come with soldiers lining the street for him and for all the things that kings did in those days. He came on a donkey. I mean, of all the things, stubborn old donkey is bringing Jesus through the streets. Why? Because he, he wasn't looking for the applause of man. Even though they were given it, the Bible says they were waving Hosanna. They had palm branches and they broke them off and began to wave Hosanna, Hosanna. They laid those branches down. They took their cloaks off and they laid them lined the streets. And people came from everywhere lining the streets. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Which means God, save us. God, save us. The crying Hosanna, worshiping this king as he rides through. You ever thought about that? On Palm Sunday, they're waving the palm branches, but on Good Friday, they're yelling crucify. Same people yelling crucify him. Same people put him to death. Listen, if you live your life for the cheer of the crowd, you're in trouble. If you live your life for the approval of the crowd, you're in trouble. Jesus didn't live his life for the applause of man. He lived his life for the audience of one, for the applause of the Father. As he rode in, fulfilling the prophecy, they screamed his praises, they yelled his praises. And then later that week on Thursday, he told his disciples as they were getting ready for Passover, he says, go into town, look for this man right here. And when you find him carrying this right here, you tell him the Lord has sent you and he'll have a room ready for us. Come and get me. They come back to the Lord, just like you said, he was there, he was waiting. He's got an upper room ready for us to come and do Passover. And so he gathered his disciples and they went to the upper room to have Passover. Now we know this event as the Last Supper. His disciples do not know that this is the Last Supper. But them, they're just there partaking of the upper room here in Passover. They think they're having, getting ready for the feast of Passover and things that happen. And so they're there, and, but Jesus knew and what would be one of the themes that he wanted to convey to his disciples on his last meal with them, on the last time he's with them before he's going to enter into a night of trials and crucifixion, you find Jesus kneeling, washing the feet of his disciples. As they came in, he began to wash their feet, pouring over them and washing their 
feet. Now you say, why was that important? Because in this day, you remember, they didn't have Air Jordans. They didn't have the shoes we have today. They, they were walking around with, with sandals at best, maybe something made kind of like sandals, but they were, their feet were open and exposed to the dirt roads and to the dust. And so it was a very dirty thing. So they would often have the servants of the house wash the feet of the guests as an honor. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm the one who's going to wash the feet tonight. And Jesus is, begins to wash his feet they're like, no, Lord, not us. Lord, let, let me wash your feet. He goes, listen, if I don't wash your feet, then you'll have no part of me. And Lord, wash not only my feet, but my head and my whole body. I want everything you have, Lord. Jesus models servanthood even as he's thinking about where he's heading. He's wanting us to learn the power of serving one another. That leadership's about serving. That the kingdom's about serving. That the kingdom's about loving people. It's, it's about getting dirty. It's about washing feet. And as he goes on, he begins to pass out the meal. and He says, by the way, guys, tonight, one of you are going to betray me. And as he's passing, I'm just imagining this because we see in Scripture where Jesus says this. So I'm imagining this is what's happening. As he's passing the bow, he goes, And the one who portrays me is the one who has his hand in the bow right now as I do. And I imagine Judas at that point had his hands right in the bow at the same time as Jesus. Not I! No! Jesus said, Judas... Do what you must do. Leave and do what you must do. Judas leaves to go on his way to selling out the Savior for the silver that he was going to give up. Peter's like, well, God, I will never, never deny you. I will never betray you. He says, Pete, you don't understand. Before this night's over and the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. And of course, we know that happened. No, I would never deny you. And it says that he then took the bread and the cup and we'll be taking communion here in just a few minutes. And he shared it with them and they took communion together. He said, now let's go to the garden. So he asked them to go to the garden to pray with him and they get there to pray in the garden. And I'm sure his disciples were like, Jesus, could you not pick a better time to pray than the middle of the night? I'm tired. We just ate. I'm full. But Jesus knew his hour was at hand. And he, what do you do when you handle anxiety and stress? Jesus went to pray. If Jesus needed to pray in his hour of stress and anxiety, how much more do you and I need to pray? It says that while he was there praying, he began to anguish and he began to stress and cry out to the Lord. He got up and noticed that his disciples that he asked to come into the garden and pray with them, they were already asleep. They had fallen asleep. Kind of like some of you on Sunday mornings when I preach. They'd already fallen asleep. I'm not going to name any names, but they had fallen asleep. And while they fall asleep, Jesus said, hey, wake up, man, guys. Can't, I need you. 
I need you. Can you just tarry with me for, for a little bit longer? I need you to pray with me. Guys, pray. It says he went back and he prayed. He said, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, can you please let this cup pass from me? Luke twenty two forty four. look what it says about this moment. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. They've now proven it is scientifically proven that it is possible to be under so much stress that you can actually sweat drops of blood. That the vessels and the stress begin to burst and you begin to have blood mixing in with your sweat. It says, this is how intense Jesus' prayer was. You know what? It should be intense. Think about what he's about to go through. Which proves to you this right here. That just because he was fully God and fully man, he didn't supernaturally make the pain go away. He knew that he had to endure the pain of the cross. And giving up his life as a sacrifice for our sins would cost him the greatest pain imaginable to anybody. And so he said this, he says, Father, if there's any other way, he's counting the cost. I don't want to have to go through this pain. Let this cup pass. But then he says, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. At that moment, he entered to covenant saying, yes, Father, I am walking through with the plan. Your plan for redeeming mankind, I'm saying yes to that. And at that moment, he said, yes, I'm sure he began to hear the sound of horses and armor coming his way. As he looked down the trail, I'm sure he could see the torches lining the trails. They're getting brighter and brighter and brighter until finally they show up in the garden. Who is there leading the way? Oh, it's his disciple Judas who comes up and gives him a kiss of betrayal on the cheek. Jesus says, Leave these men alone. Cause them no harm. It's I that you're looking for. It's me that you're looking for. They arrest him in the garden. Now, you want to talk about injustice. According to the Roman times and even the Jewish times at this time, we understand that it was illegal to put a man on trial through a bribe. But yet he was given away for a bribe. And he was never would have stood trial in the middle of a night. But they were so eager to put him through the crucifixion that they didn't just do one trial in the middle of the night. They did six trials in the middle of the night. Can you imagine waking up, hearing that your son had been arrested and he had stand six trials throughout the night while you was asleep? What kind of justice would this be? No justice. It would have been injustice. And this is what happens. And everywhere he's taken back and forth, three Roman trials, three Jewish trials, they send them back and forth that he is beaten by those guards. He's punched. His eyes are swelling. His lip busted open. His nose is bleeding. They're beating him at every trial. Abusing him to the point where his face was getting beyond recognition. Finally, Pilate says, listen, guys, I, 
I don't find any fault in this man. You want me to sentence him to death? He goes, but according to the customs of the feast, we must release one prisoner. So bring me the worst prisoner we have. Bring me the murderer. What's his name? Oh, Barabbas. Bring him Barabbas. Bring me Barabbas. And they, they bring him Barabbas. He goes, now, who do you want me to set free? This man, Jesus, whose only crime is that he healed people on the Sabbath. His only crime was that he resurrected the dead and taught people how to love. And he allowed women to come in and be a part of the kingdom. He, he allowed children to come in and be a part of the kingdom that you political guys wanted to keep them away from. Oh, so this is the only crime he's committed? So who do you want me to set free? Jesus or Barabbas? And they said, give us Barabbas. Wow. So our Savior was chosen to die over a known murderer. So Pilate says, take him down for the flogging. And when they flogged him, that means they would have chained him up around a stone bench about like this and they would have wrapped his whole body so he had been stretched out they would have taken his clothes off and they would have tied his body around that whole thing and they would have had a, a whip made of nine tails of straps of leather and in that leather would have had broken bones and metal and glass and things like that in there embedded in it and with every time they struck the body in the back of our Savior that those things would embed themselves into his flesh and skin. And when they yanked back, it had ripped it back. We don't know the exact number, but we know by the law of the custom that they would have given him 39. 40 was outlawed. So I've read commentary to say, since it was Romans that were doing this, they could have given him more than 40. We don't know this. If they held to the Jewish customs, it would have been 39. 30 mine lashes. By the time they got done, his whole back would have been exposed. Organs would have already been showing. Bone would have already been showing. It would have been a bloody massacre. Many people didn't survive that. And when they got done, Pilate thought, well, they, you know, if I beat him to the point of death, they'll let this man go. And they said, no, crucify him. He goes, well, his blood is on your hands. So be it. Do with him as you wish. And they took him out to prepare him to be crucified. They made Jesus, whose back has now been ripped open and apart and shredded. They made him carry his own cross on that back up Calvary's hill. It says that he stumbled and he, he was out of strength. He's losing blood. He's been beaten. His back exposed completely, flesh ripped off. He falls down and the soldiers call out a man by the name of Simon. Come on, Simon. Carry this cross for him up the hill. Simon carried his Savior's cross. I wonder if Simon understood the way to what he was doing. That he was carrying the cross up there for Jesus that was going to end up being the salvation for his own life. That on that cross that Jesus was going to nail his sins and your sins and my sins. They would have laid him out upon the cross and they would have taken three spikes and they would have begun to nail them in his hands. Now, we think of him nailing him in the palm of his hands, but if he was suspended in air, that would have ripped off. They wouldn't have held. It wouldn't have been strong enough. So what they did, they actually put the nail spikes through right here 
at the bottom of the base of the wrist in the hand because it was strong enough to hold the weight of a man. And not only there, the nerves were a lot stronger there. So the, the pain would have intensified a lot more by putting the nails through there. And they nailed his feet together and his hands apart. And then they bring the cross up, drop it into the hole, only to have all of his body weight now. Bam! Come down. And all of his joints would have just come out from under his, his, his joints would have came disconnected. So now he's up there holding himself up on the cross with his joints out. His body is swelling up from within because of the beating he's just received and because of the cross and his hands being nailed. Now his body is bleeding from the inside out. It's swelling. It's filling up with fluid. He is dying his own poison of his body. He can't breathe. And for every breath, because of him suspended up there, for him to breathe, he'd have had to push himself up with the spikes to grab a great breath. Can you imagine the pain that every breath he had to endure required that he would have to push against the pain? It's not an easy thing to imagine. There's no way to say it that's pretty except for our Savior was tortured to death. It was brutal. Brutal. And as he was up there and they're mocking him, they plucked his beard and they shoved a crown of thorns upon his hands, head. So now his face is unrecognizable, swelled and shut his beard plucked out, the crown of thorns on his hand, is nailed to the cross. If that had been me, I'd have said, God, strike them all dead. God, send down your power. God, send the lightning, right? That would have been me. But how many are thankful that I'm not the Savior, right? And you're not either, because you've done the same thing. What did Jesus respond? Father, Forgive them, they know not what they do. What kind of man does this? What kind of man, while hanging in a brutal, tortured death, looks out and says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And while he's up there hanging, he looks at his mom who's weeping. He says, talks to his brother and says, Son, behold, your mom. Take care of mom. I mean, down to his last breath, he's speaking forgiveness. He's speaking out care. Take care of your mom. And it says that as he saw the dark grow across the clouds, that the, in the middle of the day, that the darkness fell for over three hours upon the face of the earth. Complete darkness. At three o'clock in the afternoon, complete darkness. Jesus cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he says, it is finished!
Why did he say that in his last breath? Because he understood that the power that required our salvation, that the sacrifice that he required, the pain that he required, the bloodshed he required, that the Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world, it was now finished, that Satan was now defeated, and that he was going to be resurrected again. It was finished. No longer does sin have power over your life. No longer does the enemy have power and control over you. But you're going to be set free from what he did on the cross out of love. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So on that Palm Sunday, we understand he came into the city, which led him to the crucifixion. Now listen, we're going to celebrate. Next Sunday is going to be Easter, and we're going to celebrate big time. But today, we stop and we remember. We remember the cross. This week should be a week of remembrance. God, I remember the pain you went through. I remember the sacrifice you went to, that you died for my sins to finish the work of redemption, that you no longer know this, we know this, that he died on the cross and immediately his spirit went down to death, hell in the grave, only to be resurrected on the third day, carrying the keys over those things, carrying the power back. He went back down and took that away from the enemy and says, no, no, you don't have the last say so, I do. So what I want you to get today is I want your heart to be ready. As we get ready to take communion, I want you to get your communion cups and your cracker ready. I want you to remember the cross. I want you to remember what Jesus did for us, that he loved us this much. In that last supper, he took the bread, and I want you to get the bread ready. And it says he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he says, this bread, it represents my body. He goes, do it in remembrance of me. They had no clue what he was talking about at that time. But now we have the knowledge of looking back and seeing. He was referring to what he was about to go through. He was referring to the pain that his body was about to go through for the forgiveness of our sins, my sins and your sins. So today, as we pray over the bread, Father, we say thank you. Thank you for standing in our place, for taking our punishment. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for allowing your body to be beaten for us, God. And then we ate together. then likewise he said the cup represents his blood this isn't just any ordinary blood it was the blood of our savior he who knew no sin the perfect lamb of God no longer would sacrifice be required now all who believed in the finished work of the cross will be covered by this blood that our sins will be forgiven 
No longer will we make an atonement year after year after year, but God would erase them through the power of the blood of his son. He says, so when you take this cup, you remember the blood that was shed. Father, we remember the blood. Only this blood has the power to wash away our sins. And it didn't come easy. It came in a very painful sacrifice that you gave for us. You took the stripes upon your back for our healing. You took the nails in your feet and hands for our redemption. Sacrificing yourself and the sins of the world to the cross. That all who would believe now in the blood of Jesus will be cleansed, made righteous in the Father's eyes. So today we remember and we drink the cup. Now I want you to just, just bow your heads this morning. Just take a minute just to personally reflect. Say, God, thank you. Say, God, thank you. Come on, in your own way. Say, God, thank you for dying for my sins. God, thank you for paying that price for me. God, thank you. Thank you, God, that you gave your life for me. God, I remember today, God, on Palm Sunday, I remember I remember what this week was for you. I remember the anguish. I remember the drops of blood you sweat. I remember the beating you took. I remember you being nailed to the cross. God, I remember. And I say thank you. 